open with a poem by a guy named TK. <clears throat> and he talks about Bernie Madoff in here, and apparently this was a rich man who became that way by cheating many people out of billions. In the village of the Fontaine de Vaucluse, in the Luberon Mountains of Provence, the Sorgue River flows to the surface in a perfectly smooth, clear crystal pool. Its smoothness hides an astounding fact. 52,000 gallons of water per second flows forth from an origin so deep, no one has yet found its source. Some people live as offering, a generosity so outlandish that others would think them filled with fevered imaginings. Think of Mary, mother of Christ, her surface so still, so mild, that no one could have imagined what was bubbling up from her unthinkable depths. Others live in self-protective imaginings so fraught with fear that their living is a sinkhole, swallowing up cars, houses, and whole lives. Think of burning Madoff when he invited greed to live in the homeland of his life. There is a brilliance that sets fire to lives. Mary breathed in that light and gave birth to love. The corn seed does not grow into wheat. Mary was the same brightness she gave birth to. There is a darkness that smothers the word possibility. Madoff sank into gloom, mistaking seduction for happiness. Brightness comes into the world. It invites you. It whispers, leap, and if you listen, you will find yourself falling up into the night sky, flying, falling into brightness. Your living become trackless like the flight of birds. So somewhere, someone at some time sits in a very big, very safe house full of art, and expensive objects, and beautiful, successful people, and all the delights with an empty pit in their stomach, and the thought that maybe this isn't what life was actually about. Somewhere, sometime, someone lies in a hospital bed dying, and the fruits of what they valued, how they lived, how they gave, are evident in the companionship, the people that gather around them. And in a way, they are able to let go and let go of life. Somewhere, sometime, someone, a soldier, is lying on the cold earth, bleeding out, heavy with the feeling that they got swept up in a cause not aligned with their heart. Somewhere, someone, sometime, a person lies in a hospital bed dying, and the fruits of a long-closed mind are evident in the absence of visitors, a loneliness almost too much to bear. Somewhere, someone, sometime laments that the people around them don't love them more, do more for them, and recognize all that they do, so even their labors that look like kindnesses become tainted. Someone somewhere discovers that relationships 
someone, somewhere, sometime discovers that relationships are not a place to extract love, but a place to practice it, and everything changes. Somewhere, at some time, someone is praying that they could be sitting in a place just like this, doing a practice just like this. Somewhere someone sits and autumn colors effortlessly fill their eyes. Food arrives gifted on a table, breathing fragrant air, their bodies tingling with an undeserved vitality. There is a particular perception of my life that I find very scary, and that is that there actually are no guardrails. There's no track given that I'm slotted into. There's no guardrails that are going to ensure that we inevitably end up at a good destination. We're free, or rather we're becoming conscious that we're free, to evolve or devolve, to go left or go right, forward or back. People tell me they're afraid of what the world will be in the future, and I think I'm afraid of the person I might be when that world comes. We're free, or rather we're becoming conscious that we're free to evolve or devolve, to go left, to go right, forward or back. And of course, things have lots of nuance. Nobody can stop us. That's the scary thing about the perception. Nobody can stop me. They can help me evolve or devolve, as they do. They can help me go left or right, but to a profound degree, mind and will are independent of externals. And that freedom can be exercised in different ways. So within the context by which we exist. We are contextual beings. Within the ingredients we find ourselves with, we can cook poisons. When we get really honest, we recognize, I do cook poison. I do source poison and consume it. We can cook poisons, we can bake sweet cakes. And in reality, we do some of both. And this is practice. We stop cooking what we see actually doesn't have value in cooking. It's not mysterious. Buddha said, we're led by mind, 
Our lives are shaped by mind. And then we ask, well, what leads mind? What shapes mind? We're led by mind. Our lives are shaped by mind. It's really an awesome and empowering realization. So spiritual practicers make a firm decision. We firmly decide. And then we once again and again and again relentlessly firmly decide to walk towards love and clear vision and care and generativity. And each moment returning to your practice is this decision kept. I like to think of it as like a little, a little votive candle. For most of us, it's like a little flame in our hands that we have to protect. It can get blown out pretty easily. We have to protect this flame. Each moment returning to your practice is this decision to walk towards love, clear vision, etc., keeping it lit. Each time you drop the toxic thought, it's that decision keeping the flame lit. Emphasizing with the great difficulty in being a human is keeping this decision lit. Saying thank you. Asking what am I being given? Dogen Zenji said, giving means non-greed. And each act of attending and each act of releasing, of opening, is a gift to the Sangha. Is a gift to all our relations. So on one level, we can arouse encouragement and faith and cause and effect on the level of, I am here now, the actions I am doing will bear fruit in the future. And downstream future beings that are intimate to us, beings that are intimate to us, perhaps even beyond what we consider our physical lifespan, are impacted by this moment's efforts, by this moment's state of being. If you think of lineage, it's like in Japan and maybe other Asian countries that have this tradition of putting a paper lit lamps on rivers at certain times of the year and they float downstream. That's what the ancestors did for us. They put a lamp on a river and somehow it showed up in Klatskanai. Downstream, future beings intimate to us. Giving means non-greed. This is practice. It's like, think of the starlight that meets your eyes. That starlight, from the star's point of view, was emitted, what, 10,000 years ago? now that light is how we find our way back to where we're sleeping. 
Even in the ordinary material view, we can appreciate cause and effect, neuroplasticity, the retraining of the nervous system, each act of attending, releasing, of opening, of giving, reshapes the brain body of ourselves. In the case of giving, it reshapes the other. The boundaries are not so clear. So brick by brick and beam by beam, we build a temple. And there's all kinds of delays and permits you don't want to get and unexpected visitors and challenges. And the building is love, therefore the building is the temple. If you don't want to be hassled, if you're not willing to get aches and pains or break a sweat, you don't, you don't get a temple. temple for one is hard to get inspired by. You're not going to find that your neighbors are super eager to come pitch in at your house for your private jacuzzi you're not going to invite them to. Unlikely to happen. But a temple for all beings subtly calls forth inspiration. You coax, you tap energy, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle. We have to test this out. Aspire to build a temple for all beings and see what happens as we really engage from that place. Of course, Great Vow Monastery is a testament to a temple for all beings calling forth inspiration. So we do this practice moment by moment, and on one hand, our efforts are lamps put on a stream. And on the other hand, placing each brick is the temple. The temple is here. The temple is here. For example, open to the very experience you're happening as much as you can. Just pry your heart and awareness open. and Just fully welcome it. All the aches and pains, whatever's going on on the feeling level. To open to this experience is to be open. That's its own reward. If you open, you are open. When you let go, the fruit is immediate. It's not later. Love's texture is its own reward. When you have the mind of how can I, without trying to get noticed, be of service, that's its own reward because you're relieved of that pit in the stomach of self-centeredness. Openness's texture is its own reward. Do 
Dogen also said, non-greed means not to curry favor. A formula to consider is that the sweet and deep nourishments of spiritual life come from engaging practice without demanding anything from it. Engaging practice without demanding anything from it. That doesn't mean not desiring to break through or to clarify or realize yourself. It means folding that desire in as an energy rather than a fixed idea on a fixed timeline. It means giving up, means giving up. It means giving without hope for reward. There are no guardrails. We're led by mind, our lives are shaped by mind. And what in us do we want to lead it, and how do we want to shape it? It's, I think, very important to emphasize that the faces of gratitude are not limited to a feeling wave of one sort or another. I can imagine somebody is here saying, well, I went to gratitude session and I felt very ungrateful. There was no brown sugar at breakfast and there are no causes for happiness in this place. Or I'm just not feeling grateful because we have felt grateful and so we have a reference point We're afflicted by that memory, and this happens with all different states and experiences in life. We're afflicted by it because it's now the new reference point. Oh, I'll be grateful. I know gratefulness when I feel it. And we become ungrateful that we're not grateful. The same is true of love. Love is not a feeling. If love was merely a feeling, what a pitiful thing. Feelings move through us just like electricity. We can coax them forth again, but love is not a feeling. Let's say gratitude is more fundamentally the absence, the gap in wanting life to inspire us, wanting life to entertain us, wanting life to console us, wanting life to confirm us, wanting life to sex us, wanting life to feed us, on and on. Gratitude is the gap in all these different flavors of wanting life to do something it's currently not doing. In the gaps of want, we don't fall into a gray void. The absence of want is not boredom, because actually boredom rests on some kind of want. I remember as a teenager, I went into a spiritual bookstore to get some incense to cover up the smell of marijuana in my room so that my mom wouldn't know what I was up to. And I opened a book in the store on enlightenment, and a line popped out that said, 
not wanting anything is liberation. And I paused and I thought, that sucks. (laughs) And I narrowly escaped buying a neon ohm wall hanging (laughs) and bought three volumes of the intergalactic crystal essence transmissions of the channeled entity Cryon. thus established the basic pattern of my spiritual practice. (laughs) Not wanting anything is liberation. Not a very sexy slogan, but one to check out. We're talking about gratitude and generosity. One of the things I appreciate about the Dharma is think about in your everyday life, going to work, coming home, putting on the TV, podcast, whatever, how often do you hear the words gratitude and generosity? So even just to name the beautiful reminds us and brings forth the beautiful. So gratitude and generosity, somebody was, was a little disappointed that this is talking about generosity and not gratefulness because they wanted a gratefulness session. And from my point of view, they're just the same thing. They're just flowing into each other. It's like a circular river. They cause each other. When we're connected to beings' abundance, to beings' richness, made possible only by gaps in want, then we hold on to things less tightly. And we give in different ways. For example, without contrivance, out of your sincere and sincere zazen, true and beautiful things will come out, like Hakuin is telling us in the evening. Out of your sincere zazen, true and beautiful things will just come out, And you might be surprised if you don't cork yourself up. It will just happen. Because we're thawing the ice cube. We're moist and we're able to moisten. In contrast to how out of separateness or seeing through negativity goggles, without fail, distorted and irritating things come forth in mind and out of our mouths and inside of our bodies. I've been reading um, a book by Gabor Mate, who has gathered so much evidence, good medical research about how different afflictive emotions have a very high correlation with lots of diseases. Now, we're not making some kind of If you start thinking someone deserved their whatever, that's not what's being talked about at all. But body and mind. Just to touch on a a parts view around gratitude. Various 
expressions of ourselves arise dependent on context. Like, I'm much more monkish when I'm at the monastery than when I'm not. Thank God for you. In this session where you're hearing gratitude, 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 there might be part of you going, oh, fuck, I'm not grateful. This sucks. My life is, I have nothing to be grateful for. Or part of you rising up that actually is deeply disappointed about life. Or has a deep uh, hopelessness. And we want to we wanna embrace and welcome in loving kindness these states, these arising parts of ourselves, rather than trying to crush them so we can get spiritual. Because all beings are included within all beings. There's no way to wake up and only be on one side of the equation. So it's like a multi-sided gem, right? If you ever get a, a gemstone, there might be a face of it that is rough or opaque. And you might face that out on the, on the shelf, but you're likely to face out the most beautiful face. That's what you display. And that's what our practice is. We turn towards what is most generative well, we don't have to shave off or try to crush that other sentiment in us because if you feel it, someone else does. You can't experience a state of mind that's not shared. And so embracing what arises is a means for empathy. Yeah, I know what it's like to feel like there's not a single damn thing to be grateful for in this world. I can resonate with that. Right? But it's not our whole truth. So this is leading mind. This is shaping mind. This is shaping life. I'm going to continue some with um, Dogen Zenji. so eloquent and deep that nobody but Dogen Zenji ever understood Dogen Zenji. But that's okay. So he left off by saying, even if the gift is not your own, there is no reason to keep from giving. The question is not whether the gift is valuable, but whether there is merit. From this point of view, it doesn't matter whether the person on the street is going to spend your money on a corn dog or on a bag of crystal meth. Actually, the merit is in the giving. That's how deep the faith is in this. The merit is in the giving. The giving is the teaching. The giving is the waking up together in that moment. That's a controversial point, so if you don't agree, that's fine. Dogen continues, when you leave the way to the way, you attain the way. 
You leave Tao to Tao, you attain Tao. At the time of attaining Tao, Tao is always left to Tao. Something about getting out of the way, right? There's an art in our practice to doing the groundwork, the settling the mind, the coming into intimacy with the shape that we are, and then leaving the way to the way. Because you and I are not doing awareness. We're not operating these eyeballs. We're not receiving these sounds. We're not beating this heart. We're not breathing this breath. And frankly, most of these thoughts just appear. You could say, well, they appear in my mind, but what is that mind? If you look, and I recommend really looking, all you'll find is stainless bright space. What a gift. So we leave the way to the way. Dogen continues, when treasure is left just as treasure, treasure becomes giving. Some of this is so um, pregnant with inquiry potential. I don't want to say anything. I'll just ruin it. When treasure is left just as treasure, so I don't think of like pirates. Let's think of good stuff. When good stuff is left as good stuff, good stuff becomes giving. You give yourself to yourself and others to others. That's what we're doing in our sitting practice. We're giving ourselves to ourselves and others to others. It's easier to recognize the benefit of doing something Partially, that's our materialistic bias. The people who we laud make things and move around matter in ways that we find pleasing and helpful. Thank God. But it's harder to see that not doing things is just as generous in hidden ways. Holding your tongue. Letting somebody go through what they're going through, not interfering, letting the way attain the way. You give yourself to yourself and others to others. Dogen says, the power of the causal relations of giving reaches to devas. Devas are um, angelic beings. So in the Buddha's teachings, there's a meta-ecology of being that for most of us, we don't quite have the sensitivity to perceive these different levels of existence. Um, I remember being with a Sri Lankan monk in California, and he said, we should go to the Redwood Forest, but it's too bad the devas don't hang out there anymore. They've recently kind of departed. So people can cultivate this sensitivity. Anyways, the power of causal relations of giving reaches to devas, human beings, and even enlightened sages. When giving becomes actual, such causal relations are immediately formed. Or 
When we begin to be generous, we are lighting up the circuit of generosity. That bright, open-handed heart. And that's one bright, open-handed heart. It's the same one of the Buddha. It's the same one of your grandmother. Buddha said, when a person who practices giving goes to an assembly, people take notice. You should know that the mind of such a person communicates subtly with others. I was thinking, this is not like knowing which parent to tell what you want for Christmas, because you know they have poor financial habits. (laughs) You should know that the mind of such a person communicates subtly with others. Um... I have a bone to pick about needing science to prop up dharma. I don't think we need science to prop up dharma. But there is good research that an open heart has an electromagnetic field that is perceptible. There's good research to show how what actually helps in a mentor and mentee relationship or in therapist and client is one open nervous system, settled, attuned, balanced, resonating like tuning forks with another. I remember when Harada Roshi would leave Sogenji, and then when he would come back, it was like someone turned dimmer switches up all throughout the temple. When a person who practices giving goes to an assembly, people take notice. You should know that the mind of such a person communicates subtly with others. The point of this is not to like become spiritually shining so that we can impress others. Dogen says, therefore, give even a phrase or verse of the truth it will be a wholesome seed for this and other lifetimes. Giving magnifies giving. Think about when someone is actually without any, um, anything that they will get out of it just does something for you or gives something to you, especially if it's something that they like, how that impacts you. Give your valuables, even a penny or a blade of grass. It will be a wholesome root for this and other lifetimes. The truth can turn into valuables. Valuables can turn into the truth. So in other words, dharma can turn into valuables. Valuables can turn into dharma. This is all because the giver is willing. A king gave his beard as medicine to cure his retainer's disease. I think a long time ago in India, a beard was a really good thing to have. And if you were royal and you gave away your beard, that's a very big deal. These are related kinds of stories. A child offered sand to Buddha, right? So think of the innocence of a child just making this gesture, that kind of beautifully uh, unsophisticated generosity of giving sand, gave sand to the Buddha, and this person was reborn 
as King Ashoka, the great Indian king who, because of whom, well, we can never boil something down to one person. It's never like that. But at, King Ashoka became a vector for Buddha Dharma flourishing in India for a good long time. They were not greedy for reward, but only shared what they could. To launch a boat or build a bridge is an act of giving. He's saying, don't think you have to do something fancy. To launch a boat or build a bridge is an act of giving. If you study giving closely, you see that to accept a body and to give up the body are both giving. Just this life is generosity itself. We've accepted a body. We're going to give it up. It was given. We're going to give it back. Making a living and producing things can be no other than giving. To leave flowers to the wind, to leave birds to the seasons, are also acts of giving. One of my practices is um, to walk through the forest and, and try to become sensitive and quiet enough that I can detect where mushrooms are. You can kind of get into elvic consciousness. Elfic, not like Elvic, like Elvis, but Elfic, Elfic consciousness. And when I first started doing this, even when I lived here, I'd just bring back these buckets of these rotting, smelly things in my room and like put them on a table and have a table full of smelling, rotting things that I had to, (laughs) I felt so compelled to gather. But now, even if it's a medicinal mushroom, I like to practice at least once just leaving it there. Just leave that reishi on the log. Or I do that in record stores. I'm I'm going to be reborn as a hungry ghost, like a big giant record store with only like ABBA reissues or something. (laughs) Um, And I go into record stores and I'm immediately competitive. I'm looking around and I can see like the guys who know how to flip really fast. I'm like, I know, I know what they smell like and And so the way I practice with that is if there's a record that I want, sometimes I'll just leave it because they won't have good enough taste to get it anyway. So I just come back a little bit later. But to leave flowers to the wind is an act of giving. Dogen continues, King Ashoka was able to offer enough food for hundreds of monks with half a mango. People who practice giving should understand that King Ashoka thus proved the greatness of giving. In this kind of mythic consciousness, there are teachings that um, our rational mind just can't grasp. For example, in the Vimalakirti Sutra, you you hear about Vimalakirti's hut, which was like the size of a tatami mat or something, and 10,000 bodhisattvas were able to hang out in there and have tea. And you think, well, that's just kind of, this is why I don't like religion. Come on, God, you didn't take seven days. It was millions of years before there was even oxygen, or whatever your thought is. But mythic consciousness, that's a koan. Food for hundreds of monks with half a mango. People who practice giving should understand that King Ashoka thus proved the greatness of giving. 
Not only should you make an effort to give, but also be mindful of every opportunity to give. Now, if I could sit down with everybody who has the pleaser as a tendency and talk to them about this, I would love to do that. That's more than we can get into in session. And yet, maybe even the giving that comes from the pleaser. I think Dogen is saying, still will bear great fruit. Not only should you make an effort to give, but also be mindful of every opportunity to give. You are born in this present life because of the merit of giving in the past. Just think on an, on one day in the monastery, how many technologies you benefit from that if they took the lid off, you wouldn't know the first place to point the screwdriver if it wasn't working. Think of how many of us would flee if the heat failed. Who made these clothes? Who wrote these texts? Who manufactured this heated bamboo floor. You are born into this present life because of the merit of giving in the past. And of course, not to mention our parents. Or in other words, we should dwell on our parents. Buddha said, if you are to practice giving to yourself, how much more so to your parents, wife, and children? Therefore, you should know that to give to yourself is a part of giving. To give to your family is also giving. Even when you give merely a particle of dust, you should rejoice in your own act because you correctly transmit the merit of all Buddhas and for the first time practice an act of a bodhisattva. The mind of a sentient being is difficult to change. Pretty evident, right? The mind of a sentient being is difficult to change. You should keep on changing the minds of sentient beings. From the first moment they have one particle of the Dharma to the moment they attain the way. And this should be started by giving. For this reason, giving is the first of the six perfections. And just to uh, conclude with, with Dogen's last words of this part. Mind is beyond measure. Mind is beyond measure. Things given are beyond measure. Moreover, in giving, mind transforms the gift and the gift transforms mind. This is giving. <laughs>